0: Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life.
1: Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love & Life, Dr.
0: Karen Anderson-Abrill. Welcome to Love & Life. I'm Dr. Karen anderson Abril. To kick off season three, I've invited back to the program one of your favorites, author, podcast host, and food writer, Jacqueline Raposo. Last time, Jacqueline talked about dating while living with chronic illness, and she went deep into the struggles of the reality of managing chronic pain and multiple diagnoses that cause physical limitations, all while trying to navigate the dating scene, which as we know, is hard enough. You'll be inspired to hear how Jacqueline still maintains a positive attitude about dating and about the realities of her life despite these chronic conditions. So check that out if you haven't had the chance. That's episode 56, Dating with Chronic Illness, Interview with Author Jacqueline Raposo. And I've invited her back to the program because you enjoyed her so much, as did I, and also because we got so in-depth in the theme of dating with a chronic illness, she didn't have the opportunity to share about her book, The Me Without, A Year Exploring Habit, Healing, and Happiness. It's fantastic and it's a great theme to tackle at the beginning of the year when many of us may be trying to curtail our tendencies or do without something that we've been accustomed to doing with or to alter a habit or two. Whatever your reasons for living without, you may find, as Jacqueline did, that there are layers to self-knowledge and understanding and clarity That weren't available before you did without. Just a little bit more on Jacqueline. Food writer and podcast producer Jacqueline Raposo has taken hundreds of thought-provoking interviews for clients including Savor, Food & Wine, Town & Country, Shondaland, Bust, and The Village Voice, as well as for her book, The Me Without, and her live weekly dating podcast, Love Bites, which ran for two years on Heritage Radio Network. First-generation Azorean American, the American side of Jacqueline's family has served in every U.S. engagement going back to the Civil War, and she now amplifies the stories of our veterans as the producer and host of the iHeartRadio podcast, Service, Veteran Stories of Hunger and War. She has a chronic illness, and it's woven into all of the above. Jacqueline, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me back.
0: It's a real treat to have you back because the first time we had a conversation on the podcast, your episode was very well received by listeners, uh, lots of feedback, and it's definitely been then just a nice Instagram friendship that we've established. (laughs) I I really enjoy following you and what you do. And of course, your new podcast, which we'll talk about whenever you want to do a little plug for that. But today, let's start with your book, which now is celebrating its first anniversary of publication, correct?
1: Yes. Yes. A year ago, January 16th, it came out. That's great.
0: It's called The Me Without. And just to let people know, it's a memoir weaving in Jacqueline's experience with taking designated time to live without things that most of us live with on a daily basis. And you started this exercise of restraint and and also, of course, a reality that you live with this chronic illness. So I was struck even starting your book that you live without in many realms already. (laughs) Sadly, and yet here you decided to go without in even more domains of life. And I just wanted to kind of launch with this. You said in the beginning of the book, I should have been happy, period. You were looking at your life, writer, podcast host, living in Manhattan, 30-something, thriving and doing all the fabulous single girl things we do. I should have been happy period but was I happy question mark
1: Yeah I think that there's there's so much about what we this picture we create for ourselves that's that comes from you know everything that we've built into our that's been built into our histories from what our family expects of us from what our society that whatever society we've sort of grown up in expects of us and then now we've got this social media world and then the path that we expect our lives to take, whether that's, you know, the specific job or the marriage and the children and the house. And we sort of, we paint this picture. And then if we're in it, I think it can go two ways that either we have all of those things and we are not necessarily happy or we don't have those things and we're not happy. But I know for me, I just sort of, I think because I had, technically on paper, yes, I was living in New York city and I was doing this creative job and succeeding in it to some extent. And I was single, but I was actively dating and I had a podcast about dating. And so that sort of gave me, you know, I was ahead of, I said I was ahead of the pack in some way, or I should be ahead of the pack. Mm -hmm. I was sort of placating myself with like, well, you have the things on paper, like you should be happy. And in a way of self soothing, wasn't letting myself face the fact that I didn't really have all of those things. Like, I wasn't succeeding in my career in a lot of ways. I, my finances were a mess. I was way overworking to, to have the success that I had. Um, dating was exhausting and not fun all the time. And I wasn't finding a relationship. My health with my illness was suffering, and I couldn't seem to get ahead in it. And so it was sort of like, "Oh, but you have all of the things you should be happy and I wasn't making any bold moves to change anything for the better mm-hmm. and and that And so that's where I was like, "I have to do something drastic and instead of trying to do more instead of taking another class instead of adding another job instead of going on another date, I was like, What if I just face the opposite and take something else out and that sort of started this study, which ended up being a study about habit and, you know, consumerism and technology and all these things that I ended up studying. But really it was about feeling very overwhelmed by all of the the things that we can that we can fill into our lives to almost sort of trick ourselves into thinking that we're happy when we're really not.
0: Well and you mention it distraction. And we are so able to distract ourselves, whether it's this trajectory that we believe we're supposed to be on and we've never really ascertained whether it's ours or if it's just been handed to us by our family, by our cultural expectations. And we're just chugging along and never really noticing, never taking our own pulse, so to speak, or taking a look in the mirror. Is this what I want? Is this for me? And we don't take that time and that space because if we do, we have to sit with some really uncomfortable emotions. And who yes. wants to do that? Oh, yes. <laughs> right? So, so let me just Right? Let me just pull out my phone and scroll. And right. it's almost like we numb ourselves psychologically. And so when you talked about it, I love that you brought that up, because I'm thinking when you started to take stock, am I happy? And if I'm not happy, instead of Adding to it to fix, in quotes, this malaise you were feeling, you subtract it, which I think is a bit counterintuitive, but obviously really helped provide that clarity.
1: Exactly. Because, I mean, at its core, what I did is I just took out something I was doing habitually that wasn't serving me well. Right. So I started with social media for 30 days, 40 days, sorry, and then shopping for 90, and then sugar. Um, and then I sort of went from there. And so you could, uh, you could, and a lot of people have read the book and be like, that's not a, that's not a you know, novel thing. Like people do that all the time. And that's true that a lot of us just take stuff out of our lives because we want to lose weight really quickly, or we want to shift our budget or whatever. And we just stop doing something. But the deceptively difficult thing about what I did is that it wasn't just taking something out for a, a quick fix. Every time I took something out, and these were hard things, social media was an emotional um, safety net for me. Shopping, and it wasn't just like, oh, I couldn't go, like, I don't go to stores and go, like, clothes shopping. I'm not that kind of shopper. It was like, oh, I need something, I'll click on Amazon. Or I'm in the grocery store and I see a food that I want. I'm just going to buy the food. It was just like buying things without really without thought. And, mm-hmm. so every, and so by saying, no, I cannot go on social media and reaching for the phone and then not being able to actually do the thing or being like, oh, I need this and going into Amazon and then being like, oh, I have to stop. I can't do that. in those moments, the real hard thing of what I did and, and journaled about and then started researching was who am I? without that thing? Why am I reaching for that in this moment? Right. And it really became a, it becomes about your identity, about why you're like, am I, am I reaching for this because I'm lonely and I'm alone because I'm a sick person who freelances and spends a lot of time in one room. And so am I reaching out for social media over and over dozens of times a day to fill an emotional void that is not being filled through friendships and relationships, or is it just because I'm, I'm literally addicted to picking up a phone every time I break from concentration and I don't have enough self-discipline in my work as a freelancer with shopping. Do I actually need these things or am I trying to feel some am I, am I, is my self-confidence lacking because I don't feel good about my body right now. And so I'm trying to just put on another sweater to feel better. And so actually contemplating, those, who am I with this? Who am I without this? What am I feeling? Why am I feeling it? And facing that dark stuff about yourself that really hurts to face. Once you start doing that for a while, you have no choice but to shift that narrative and that conversation with yourself, because it doesn't feel good to sit there for a very long time. It's really about figuring out your values with stuff and without stuff, and then deciding, can I live as a person who chooses by their values?
0: Well, and and I love because your book is one part experiment and and kind of just providing information about this self-experiment. It's one part memoir. It's one part single girl living in the city dating because, of course, (laughs) Love Love Bites was all about food and dating because you're a food writer and you had a podcast about dating. It's one part. uh, Let's take a look at the literature every topic that you bring up that comes up for you whether or not you wanted to bring it up or not with these periods of without you delve into the psych research and which I love of course and I so it's great it's peppered in and, and also you're a brilliant writer just for anyone who hasn't read the book it's so smart the writing is so smart and pithy but also so accessible thank so you I, and what I love is how intentional you are and you you mentioned about your identity talking about who we are, and you talk about your values, which is so, so important because there's so much psych research on when we clarify our values, it helps make those choices easier. But oftentimes, we haven't taken a little bit of space to really identify what our values are. I had Dr. Stephen Hayes on the program. He's the creator of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And I know you you know a lot about CBT, and you you may be familiar with ACT, which is a third-generation cognitive behavioral therapy. And really, the whole gist of ACT is to clarify what your values are so that you can then be intentional about choices you make throughout your day, throughout your life, so that they are in service of your chosen values. Clarify that they are your chosen values. Because if they're your chosen values and not something that's been put on you, then it's a lot easier to stay with those values because you've committed to them already. And that's what you did in this process is really clarify your own values.
1: Yeah. And it's, and I think it's so hard because I think our values often rub against our identity from a more superficial aspect, or at least for me, I feel like being someone who has some sort of public presence because I am a, I'm a writer, I'm a food writer I am a podcast producer and and Love Bites was a very out there, like, you know, it is me and my host as we interview people. So my personality was very much a part of it. But a lot of us have more of a public presence because of social media in general. And because a lot of our jobs, as we move into more of a remote freelance work landscape, we have to connect more digitally. And because we have these little boxes that require us to define ourselves in X amount of characters that can be very limiting. Um, one of the most intriguing interviews I did was with Amber case, uh, who is a cyborg anthropologist and former tech designer. And, and I'm not going to say too much about it because I cover her a lot in the book, but she talked a lot about how our online personalities are clashing with our real life sense of identity because of this, because we are, limited in our self-expression online because we have these algorithms created by other people that do have us clicking and clicking and because of you know the things that we know about you know rushes of dopamine in our brain when we see the likes that we that people are giving on our posts and then if we don't get them we don't get that rush of dopamine and we feel bad about ourselves. We can say I value this, I value this, I value this, but as we go through our days when we are constantly being bombarded by this digital landscape by other people putting their opinions of who we are onto us. And just by, I think, a feeling of a need for community as well. I know for me, I definitely struggle with, you know, an illness. My illness is a huge part of my identity, but a lot of people with chronic illness, it is the primary part of their identity in some way. And I don't look at other people with judgment in that, but I've never wanted my, my illness to be the primary, identifying factor of who I am. So it's not, you know, it's not the biggest part of my bio. It's not the biggest part of, you know, how I express myself on social media. It is a part of who I am, um, I don't. I don't just say I am a writer. I'm not just a writer. I don't want to say I am one thing. You know, like I don't want to identify as one thing. I'm also, you know, even culturally, I'm Portuguese American, but within that, I'm actually Azorean Portuguese. And I don't necessarily think that uh, identifying ourselves very specifically serves us because it sort of blocks us into these with these decisions that we have to make as we sort of clash against each other and within ourselves. So again, going back to the the value system of of identifying and choosing and moving through the world, I think if we sort of focus on identifying our our values, then at least we're moving ourselves forward. We don't say say stuck in a job or a relationship or just a phase of hurt if we're not feeling if we're not feeling safe or we're not feeling comfortable or we're not feeling inspired if we're just sort of going along with our lives
0: and again, the theme of having a hard time even carving out the time to reassess or mistaking feelings of loneliness. You talk about that certainly in the beginning with social media because social media, and you know the research as well, but it bears mentioning here, the research shows that no matter how robust our social media connections are and how many friends in quotes we have on all these different platforms, it's not a substitute for face-to-face absolutely not. And you talk about even the reality of not being able to see someone's body language so that we're not truly cultivating empathic conversation. Even if we think we're being pretty decent or trying not to incite any kind of drama or controversy in our posts, there's still, there's limitations without having that face-to-face interaction and letting our bodies and our, our perceptual abilities take in the body language of someone we're speaking to. And so we, and we know that obviously, because people will say, I mean, the vitriol that's on these platforms, I mean, it does happen in face-to-face, but not nearly to the same degree. Right, right. And and so just a reminder for all of us that we can't think that our social media connections are going to replace our face-to-face, yet, like you said, working from home, people having the opportunity then to feel like I'm connected, but not realizing it lacks the depth of an authentic connection. But in this digital age, I mean, you see people all the time at, at restaurants seven women will be there for a lady's brunch and they're all on their phones and not even talking to each yeah. other. But, so, But let's talk a little bit again of, to the loneliness piece because of course a lot of my listeners are dealing with dating relationship stuff. And so I know they go through, and as we all do, loneliness is part of the human condition, which you really flesh out in the book as well, this notion that we should always immediately distract from any pangs of loneliness. Again, mm-hmm. getting back to that, why am I reaching for my phone? I, this little pang of loneliness. I don't want to feel that. I mean, who does, right? Of right. course we don't. You talk about Sherry Turkle's research, and I love this quote you put in from Turkle. If we are unable to be alone, we will be more lonely.
1: Yeah. Oh, I just got chills as you said that. Um, Yeah, I really struggle with loneliness still, Um, and one of the things I loved reading several of her books and her studies is with social ties, if we don't put in the time to, to fumble in... In conversation with relationships. If we don't just establish being there for someone in the flesh with that body language, with the vocal inflection, with active conversation where we can't write a rough draft of what we're going to say, where we just have to be there to support someone or to be supported, then we're not going to actually have that safety of connectivity, which is one of these, you know, universal needs that psychologists talk about safety, security, and sustenance and connectedness. So that's one aspect of what she talks about a lot is just being vulnerable and sitting with other humans. And then on top of that solitude, if we just know ourselves, and this goes back to the value system, if we know ourselves how we like to spend our time, how we want to move through the world, how we want to communicate what we want to say. We need that quiet time to know who we are and how we want to support ourselves and what we believe in. If we're just filling our time with the to-do lists and being out with brunch and being on our phones and not having the solitude to figure out who we are, to figure out the people that matter to us, the things that matter to us, the activities that matter to us, and then to be present in those moments, then we are going to feel this absence, this loneliness when we're with people because they're not really listening to us and we're not really listening to them. <laughs> you right. know, she found that even the the presence of a phone on a table in a restaurant, yes, inhibits intimacy because we know that that phone can ring at any second or that person can grab it to look at social media or to answer a text. That even just having. The the threat of an interruption makes us not want to be as vulnerable and as free in conversation that we're lacking that amount of intimacy with other people. So if we have the alone time to really know what we want from the time that we're together, or even from the time that we're by ourselves, aloneness and loneliness are two different things. You can have both of them, but if you don't know how to be alone and to enjoy being alone, it just opens up so much more actual space for loneliness because of this lack of presence.
0: Yeah. And another quote from your book, the capacity for solitude makes relationships with others more authentic.
1: Yeah, exactly. For that, for that reason. And this goes across the board with emotions as well. Um, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, I use her studies later in the book about just the difference between, um, those who can articulate their emotions and those who can't in our, our ability to be able to, especially with negative emotions, if we can better articulate specifically what we are feeling, we are more apt to be able to process and move through to a better place than those who cannot, who repress emotions, who don't want to discuss them. Those negative situations tend to linger and go unresolved comparatively. And so that's another another part of this, is that when we take the time to, what am I feeling? What am I really feeling? What am I really thinking? What do I really want to do about it?
0: Yeah, she wrote a massive book about yes. feelings. <laughs> and I
1: read that. I read that a couple of years ago when
0: it first came out. So I loved that you cited her research. And of course, as a psychologist and former therapist, I love the idea that yes, when we articulate and really process and understand, let me just sit with this emotion for a moment, figure out what it is, then we can then more readily access the tool in our tool belt that we need to cope and to manage. And of course, as a psychologist who's very wary of big farmers' knee-jerk reaction to medicate every emotion away. That also troubles me. You talk about boredom. Yeah, yeah because it's it's the idea that, oh, there's some neurological imbalance in your brain, and that's why you need to th- – that, that feeling isn't legitimate. It's right. just a chemical reaction due to neurotransmitters, which – Actually, research doesn't support any of that, but, and what it does is it keeps people away from the therapist's office or from that deep conversation with a friend that will start to ascertain what's going on or from those moments of just sitting with it and just letting it be and going, what is this about? What is this emotion trying to tell me? And you said in the book, boredom and anxiety are signs to attend more closely to things not to turn away, which again, this pulling these distractions away from your daily routine gave you the space to go, what is boredom? What is anxiety? What is it trying to tell me? Instead of being so resistant to it, I don't want this. I will distract. I will medicate. I will anything other than feel this feeling. That's yeah. that's a position where we lose power taking that position. We gain power when we when we're ready to accept it and then decide what to do with it.
1: And one thing I found comforting was that across the board with the different professionals I researched. So that went from psychologists to neuroscientists to um, to movement therapists to zero waste researchers. It it all comes back to. I think sort of two things from from what was most affected to me. The first was that it was just very empowering to think about the brain like any other muscle. Like when we think about this beautiful idea of neuroplasticity that we can sort of shape our our right. the way our brain works. Um it's it's not a complicated concept that, you know, the brain is like any other muscle and it falls out of shape. And so if we're not working it into the muscle that we want it to be, then, you know, by like, you know, by sitting and identifying and practicing and focusing our concentration then of course we're going to keep on feeling the horrible, the same horrible things. Like we wouldn't expect anything else with our bodies. We wouldn't expect like, Oh my calf muscles are going to become like, you know, toned and sexy. If I just keep on sitting here on my, you know, on my floor, like doing nothing, We right. wouldn't expect right. that of our calf muscle. I don't know why I picked that randomly, um, <laughs> you know, but it's the same thing with our brain. Like why would we expect, you know, our lives to all, like our, our worlds to suddenly shift if we're not actually doing anything regularly about that and so that to me was just sort of very comforting that yes like i'm not going to change my brain and my reality by doing the same things by reaching for the brownie or the drink or the or the phone or the 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 quick fix of the the new purchase like those aren't actually changing the way i'm thinking feeling viewing the world And then the, the secondary sort of thing that comes from that is just how much energy is wasted actually with like, with all of that. Like we think that, oh, it's so hard to sit with our thoughts, to sit with our feelings, that it's all of this energy. But I did not expect that all these people I interviewed were going to talk to me about energy and saving it. That actually it, it takes a lot of energy to have too much stuff. Because you're now moving stuff around, you're buying stuff, you're discarding of packaging. Then you're deciding if you, then we have too much stuff in our closets and we're deciding if we liked the stuff and then we're getting rid of the stuff. Like we're wasting energy there. We are wasting energy by falling into these patterns. Like I was having huge panic attacks at one point and that So much energy, physical energy, emotional energy falling into these cycles of panic that my body was going into before I learned how to reclaim that. Um, energy physically with, you know, I studied the the Amy Cuddy's power poses and talked to a Pilates teacher about just physical energy. If we're not holding our bodies properly, how then we're not breathing fully. We're not circulating oxygen and how much energy, physical, literal energy is being wasted, calories being burned. We're just not using our energy or this muscle to our benefit because it's hard for a little bit. Um, So to me, I found that very comforting that like, oh, okay, my brain, this whole thing, it's just another, it's another skill I can learn. It's another muscle I can work. It's not this unreachable mountain peak. It just takes facing all of this stuff that is hard to face that we don't necessarily want to. And we have the time. We like to say we don't have the time, but we're wasting all of that time and energy (laughs) buying the stuff and being on the phone. We have the time and we deserve to use the time better.
0: Also, I I love that you you cite the the research that neurons that fire together wire together, which is empowering to know. It's like that muscle. So when I keep pairing things together in my experience, in my thought processes, my brain will follow suit. It's just like if I do 10 push-ups a day, my body has no option but to be stronger, If I keep doing those and push, right? It really, it's not. There's no. There's no option, and that is powerful for us to realize that we can do the same with our mind and with our brain, and it's on a physiological, neurological level. It's not just think positively and Susie Sunshine and all kinds of so fluff. It's really legitimately science. Science. Yes.
1: Yes. And I think that, and I hope that people with illness find it empowering too, because I find illness not empowering. I am very sick. And sometimes I want to go on social media and remind all the people who don't see me as a sick person that like, Hey, I'm a sick per like I do all of this stuff in a very painful body in a very expensive medical reality. And life can be horrible because of my illness. Like it is, it, it impacts everything. And I hate it. And I would trade I don't know what I would do to not be a sick person. And I'm not saying that I'm a lesser person because of it or that sick people are lesser people. I'm just saying we do not live in a world where it is easy to survive this way. And it just hurts. Like I'm exhausted of being in pain. I'm tired. I'm physically exhausted of living this way. And I let myself feel that. And I let myself complain about that. And I let myself be angry about that because it sucks. And I hate it. And I, I really, 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 really hate it. But I don't want to drown in that. And doing this kind of challenging, hard work, I have some say in. I can't, there is no, like the crux of my illness is myalgic encephalitis with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, with hypotension and volume depletion. And I could give you several other diagnoses. I can't fix those right now. I'm doing my best at keeping them so that I can you know, do what I can physically. I can in a moment where I'm freaking out about that, take a deep breath, calm my body down, look at the sky, find a bird, do a mantra, call a friend, drink some water. I can do a lot of things before I drown to that or before I drown to the fact that my finances are crazy or before I drown to the fact that something romantic went really South or that this big life change that I have coming up literally like right now is threatens to overwhelm me emotionally. I can choose certain things and I can keep honing certain tools and I can shape my narrative and my reality. And those choices do fold into and on top of each other and make as much of a the good life that I have as possible. And, and I'm not special I'm not doing anything that costs a lot of money or requires a lot of special access. You know, like it's just me and my brain and my body and some books, you know, like, <laughs> so anybody can do it. And I find it very empowering in that. Like I specifically with this book, I said, I can't spend money. I can't do a challenge by going to a spa or an ashram. That was one of the rules that I made for that reason as a single woman like I definitely I don't have a family to support so that gave me certain liberties with some of these things I do have more time I don't have children so there is that involved but we all have enough time to work on this stuff if we want to being having an illness I'm just forced to I think pay more attention to this kind of stuff but we all can do this it is within our power
0: It's so great connecting with all of you via the podcast. And I would love to meet you IRL. If your organization is looking for a speaker for your next event, check out my website, go to the speaking page and see the content that I love to talk about. Just like on the podcast, in my speeches, I cover a wide array of topics grounded in psych research, of course. I'd love to meet you and share strategies for thriving in all realms of love and life with you and your organization. I cannot recommend Dr. Karen enough as your speaker at your event. As my keynote speaker, she completely set the tone of compassion, self-love and authenticity that bled into everything we did for the rest of the event. She was incredibly prepared and present and went above and beyond when it came to sharing the event with her audience. Her knowledge, magnetic energy, and expertise while on stage is one thing. It will be everything you'd hope for and more for your audience. But her giving spirit and willingness to do more than simply show up when it's time to go on is icing on the cake. She walks her talk, and by the end of working with her, I was wishing she lived down the block from me for weekly meetups. For more information and to book me to speak at your next event, contact my producer, Tim May. Tim at loveandlifemedia.com. One of the themes that I think, again, many of my listeners can resonate with was this notion of beating ourselves up because a lot of our negative self-talk really gets into we chastise ourselves. We say things to ourselves that we would never say to our worst enemy and, Mm -hmm. and harnessing that And replacing that – talk about energy. It takes a lot of energy to even notice it and then what to do with it. So share a little bit of what you learned about just trying to literally not think negatively, which is – massive
1: I think the, the first step was again recognizing I, I interviewed Professor David desteno he's a northeastern psychologist and he studies social emotions and so we talked both about how this works with the internet where you know we don't have the person in front of us with their vocal inflection and their eye contact and so we're just sort of it's not really a conversation out on social media it's really more of a monologue we're just sort of pushing out and then he said that's sort of the same thing with this with this the thoughts in our head it's not a dialogue it's a monologue really. Yeah. Um, and so just sort of recognizing that, oh, there is a voice in my head, that voice is me and I can talk back to it. Um, right. Right. I think that's sort of the first step. So when I went into, by, by December of this book, I started in June and I ended in June. And by December, I was so deep in this self-study that I was really not good emotionally. I was in a very low place. And that's when I was like, enough is enough. I have to sort of recapture this negative, thought. And because I had realized I was having panic attacks at night, that'd be almost asleep. And then I would catch on a grain of a thought. Like I don't, you know, like I don't have a check coming in or something about something with my medical thing, or I had another bad date, whatever the tiny little thought was, it was like a grain of sand that would just sort of get stuck there. And then all of a sudden I was like choking in a sand storm that there was just all these thoughts flying everywhere, going far to the worst case scenario. And they would keep on happening every night. And so that the first step was just identifying that I was doing that, that, Oh, this is another habit that's happening. I do not know where I came up with this, but I just came up with, you know, everybody, people do mantras. And, um, for some reason with this, I just decided to sort of do the fake it till you make it thing and picked five names of women, including wonder woman and Michelle Obama. I would just capture, okay, I'm, I'm doing this. My brain is doing this. Stop it check out what your body is doing. If I'm hunched in a ball, if I'm hyperventilating, if I'm, you know, what is my physical posture saying about me? Because I was studying, you know, the power posing and this, you know, circulation of oxygen and all that kind of stuff. What is my body posture saying? Can I change that? Now just repeat these names, just do that, concentrate on that over and over. And so I would start doing that at night. I'd start doing that when I was walking my dog and catching myself, berating myself about, something that I was writing badly or something I was doing badly. And with a little, just a little bit of time, all of a sudden the, the conversation was shifting where either one of the five women would talk back to me <laughs> and say something, or I would start talking back to myself, or I would just be like, I don't want to say that to myself and I would choose something else. And so just by capturing my thoughts, deciding what I want them to be and just doing the practice over and over again, that does shape actually what the day is and how the world looks.
0: And I love that you used your mantra to I mean it was it was its own distraction. It was a tool then because you were getting in this cycle of spiraling down with these negative thoughts. And you stopped it by going, okay, I I can't even address all this negativity right now, but I can say these five names over and over right now, which is gonna pull my mind from that spiral, that rabbit hole of defeat and it's going to pull me back to at least just get me back to baseline, (laughs) then I can start working on examining that thought. So often it is a monologue in our mind that we just accept as truth, accept as reality without going, hey, I can dialogue a little bit. And and Dr. Hayes, who I mentioned earlier, the creator of ACT, he talks about the dictator within. And what you did through this process was what he calls getting some distance, get a little distance between you and your thoughts. Like, Imagine them out in front of you, like there's that dictator telling me that I'm broke now and I'm lonely now, so this is how it's going to be for forever. Enjoy your life, your your horrible life. And you look at that thought, you, you pull it out of your head, so to speak. Imagine it out in front of you and go, okay, thanks, dictator. Once again, you're coming with some lovely thoughts for me and thanks for your input. I got it.
1: Yeah. I do this with, I have a hypnotherapist. I speak to twice a month and we do a lot of that. That's literally like figuring out emotions in my body, thoughts in my head, pulling them up, making them characters. And my characters (laughs) have been, have been hairy black tarantulas. They've been little Mickey mouse mice. They've been like all of these things that are battling in there. And we make them talk and we make them talk to each other. And it sounds silly, but you know, it really works when you physicalize your thoughts and your emotions. And another person I interviewed in the book. Uh, Rocco Bellic, he was the producer of the documentary Happy, which is a wonderful documentary. I don't know if it's still on Netflix now. Um, but we talked about just being creators who study happiness, essentially, as one of these things. And, you know, to him, he said, like, it's worth the the risk of this sort of woo woo, you know, world that you enter into a little bit where you have to get a little silly sometimes in order to to learn more about your emotions and to change them and to change your, your decisions in your life. You have to sort of drink the Kool-Aid a little bit yeah, to, to change your, like you say, to change your thoughts and change your life.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because when I was in grad school, cognitive therapy seemed to me like too good to be true, too gimmicky, right? Like, well, you can't just challenge that thought and claim that it's irrational, even though it is, right? But you can't just do that because You're going to feel in that moment that what you're thinking is true. And if you feel that it's true, then it is true. And that's just it. And you can't just challenge it. Like, to me, it just seemed almost too simple. But of course, in life, the older we get, we realize that the the most profound things are often the simplest, really, not easy, not yes. at all easy. No, 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 not mm-hmm. easy. Yeah, But simple. And it's just so funny that that was my first impression of cognitive therapy. And now it's my absolute go-to. And what I basically infiltrate everything I do is all about that taking charge of your thoughts. But And it does, it feels a little, because it's like, I believe this is reality, but I challenge this and I create another reality for myself. Well, what reality are we talking about? That feels very woo-woo for someone who was raised in the Midwest. Right. What reality do I pick? But really, what reality do we pick every day? Isn't that so much of what distinguishes a happy versus a floundering, unhappy person is oftentimes what reality am I going to pick? Because it's that glass half full, half empty, cliche after cliche after cliche. But why are those cliche? Why do they remain? Yeah. Yeah
1: another quote that I put in from another, another study was happy people do things that make them happy. And it's, again, it sounds so simple, but it's like a lot of us know, like we think we know like, Oh, I like, I love to do this. I love to go hiking. I love to travel. I love to go to restaurants. I love to read books, but how often do we actually sit and read a book? Do we read a book every day? Do we travel every two months? Do we go hiking every other weekend? Like we're not actively just doing the things that make us happy in that way. And, um, A lot of people about my book are like, they're like, it's not that profound. And I was like, I know, but when you do it, it is. You know, it's been, I started this project in 2016, and I am still working it and affected by it. The things that I learned are still in practice versus people who read it, but they were like, oh, yeah, like I I appreciated the journey. I learned some things, but I didn't find it to be that, you know, new of a concept. I'm like, I know the concept is not really (laughs) new, but it's the process of actually. Doing it is really hard, but you have to go through all of this kind of stuff. You have to face all of this stuff in order to get the impact. You can't just learn about it. You know, you have to do it.
0: Well, first of all, I'm irritated that someone would say that it's not that profound because that just seems like it's trying to cut away at what you're sharing. You're not preachy in the book at all. Like No, I don't want to be preachy. I'm not a You're the least preachy ever. I mean, the book is just (laughs) this is what I did for me. And here's what I learned. I mean, to me, I thought it was very profound because I kept thinking, how would I do that? I don't know that I could do that. I mean, really, from even you talked about um the Vixen autopilot. So again, for my listeners who yeah. <laughs> are on the dating scene and you examine dates without alcohol, which for many people does not happen. And it was I was hard. It. Yeah, that you're was right hard. It? Yeah. And then you're kissing someone goodnight and you're like, I'm not that into this kiss. I'm on autopilot. Yeah. Again, is this my value? Am I serving my values by kissing this guy just because that's kind of what you do at the end of the date? Would I be kissing him more committed to this particular kiss if I were under the influence of alcohol? Probably. I mean, these are things that you're going to read about, but you're going you're gonna to understand it to a degree. But until you do it, which I haven't, so I'm not trying to act like I did, but- I, I just don't like when someone tries to minimize what you were putting out there. And, and oh, people, thank you. People do their stuff.
1: I know we can't let that. No, I don't worry about it. I read it more with with compassion for not everybody. I, maybe not everybody needs to do something like this. But yeah. I, when I read that, I'm more like, oh, if you just if you did it for yourself, we would, you know. And and yeah. it's also it goes back to the. I, I really I'm about the one-on-one connection with things with people and. So with those kind of responses to it, I more just want to like reach through the computer and be like, what's going on with you? (laughs) How can I help you dig deep into yourself? Like, you know, like with people who don't like the writing style, they're who are like, oh, it's, I find her grating or annoying or whatever. And be like, who who do you find grating and annoying in your life that I remind you of? Let's talk about them, you know, like, but that's not my job, obviously. I just wrote a book.
0: (laughs) But but it is your job to, receive or not receive the commentary and to recognize what we all know because we were told by someone when we were little what other people say about you is way more about them than exactly. it is about you exactly. but, but again, yeah. it's a constant reminder we have to have with ourselves if you're single you've likely heard it all you've been told you're too picky you should just get on another dating app or that you're not trying hard enough And you're probably really tired of hearing those messages because I know I was when I was single for all those years, which is why I felt the need to bring another perspective to the dating relationship self-help genre. Single is the new black, don't wear white till it's right is my take on what the single life can be if we refuse to settle, we know that we're worth an extraordinary relationship and we refuse to fall prey to single shaming. Trust me, it is a different self-help book. Check it out on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or on my website, www.drkaren.me, D-R-K-A-R-I-N.me. So getting back to the dating, you talked about the lessons are serving you well, and you've shared that you did go through a recent breakup. And so, and now a massive move. Talk about how those lessons have helped with these major life transitions.
1: Sure. So for those who haven't read the book, I'm going to give a little spoiler alert that I start the book sick, single, and broke. And by the epilogue, I'm a little bit sicker, but work is going a little bit better. And I've met the man who for all intents and purposes, is the man that he thinks so, I think so, my family thinks so, everything just cosmically seems to click. Um, and so when I was on your show last time talking about dating with illness, um, by the time it came out, we, it was actually vocalized by him to me that he was no longer really feeling that. And unfortunately, I'm going to say this very honestly um, because this is something I had debated about being a little public about or not, but unfortunately, it was because of my illness that he started changing the way he felt that because I had gotten sicker since we had started dating, it, it is very hard. There's a lot going on. The book brought a lot more attention and identity around my illness than I had been prior. And I was speaking about the book a lot last year. So there was a lot going on with me being sicker. I did more in my medical case this past year with more doctors, more tests, more serious tests while I was on the book tour um, which my book tour is very, very local, but I was doing all of these events and podcasts. It was a lot on him and on us. And he just, he couldn't take it. And, um, the, but, but more specifically, he stopped communicating with me about it and was, and fell out of love with me before I even knew it before I even knew how bad a problem was. And so it really, to me is about communication first but to him, the way he vocalized it, it did go back to me being sick and how that affected his happiness. So, and that happened, the final breakup happened four days before I turned 38. And I had told my, my roommate, the woman I'd been living with for 10 years, that I'd be moving out in, by the end of 2019 because he and I were supposed to move in together. We'd been talking, I'd assumed we'd be moving in together by the end of the year. We'd been talking about apartments and about a, you know, a house in the country at some point, like we were on that path very clearly. He had used the word wife before we had talked about how many Christmas trees we'd be having in the future. Cause I'm a crazy Christmas person. We were very, for almost two years, very intertwined. So if this were a couple of years ago, getting broken up with by the first man I had been in love with in a very, very long time, a couple days before my birthday and also with my roommate still saying when you move out, like her language didn't change. She was saying when you move out at the end of the year, I would have a couple of years ago, I would have fallen off a cliff because that, because that's what I did the last time I had a breakup like this. Um, back in 2011, I went off of a cliff and for years I did not climb back up. Um, this time, my sense of value, while challenged, and while it is still challenged, I still have days where, when I, especially when I'm very, very sick, I have the voice in my head saying, he broke with, up with you because of this. Right. You will not have the family, the house, and the country because you are a sick person. You are more in debt than you've ever been because you are a sick person. and you, like I have that voice, but I, I don't believe that voice. I know that voice is not true. I know the man who I was dating for good and for bad. And I love for good and for bad. The things I know are more true about why things didn't work. I am sitting on my floor right now in my apartment. I move tomorrow morning and I'm not moving somewhere specific. I am house sitting for friends. They had offered me a house sit last year because I do well out of the city during winter. So I'll be house sitting Um, in the Hamptons through April. And then I don't know where I'm going. All of my things right now are in storage and I'm sitting, I have a mattress on the floor and my office is sort of built on boxes around me. And talk about safety nets and habitual safety nets. This room for 10 years has been my safety net. It has been my my sixth space it has been my office, it has been my home, this neighborhood. I have so many neighbors who are so upset that I'm leaving. Yeah. I've been saying goodbye to neighbors for weeks and they are they're sad that I'm leaving. I know so this is my home. And I'm leaving it and I'm leaving New York City which is my home and I love. But the narrative that I'm that I believe in, not that I'm creating that I believe in is that I have value with and without my illness. Just because this space has been safe for 10 years doesn't mean it's the right space. I've been hankering for years to try something different, and I deserve to try that, to be brave and try that. And as someone who studied without for a year with what can change when we don't have the habitual safe things that we have, I'm going to be living with just a certain amount of clothes, a certain amount of office things, a certain, like I won't have the majority, 90% of my belongings, 90, 95% of my belongings until I figure out where I can unpack them for a while. And I'm feeling pretty strong about that. Um, I'm freaking out a bit, but I'm also feeling pretty strong about that because of all of these things I know about myself and the things that I know about myself with finding new relationships um, with connecting with people, with what I have to offer the world. And so I'm, I'm just banking on that. I'm, I'm making a huge gamble right now. But I think we deserve to take some gambles sometimes.
0: I, I just love that it's still serving you. And I also, when I hear what you're talking about, the strength is very clear. And it's also clear that how would you not feel like you were going to freak out at times. I mean, in, in this kind of transition, it would be abnormal if you didn't feel like you were going to I freak out sometimes. I was
1: crying 20 minutes before I got on the phone with you because I was doing my morning like journal with my plan and my gratitude and what I want to accomplish today. And knowing that this is the last day I'm living in this room, I started crying because yes, it's hard. Of course, I'm yeah. going to freak out. I'm going to be living alone in a house for in a town that I don't know for three months. Um, but it's supposed to be hard. Right. It's supposed to be scary. It doesn't mean it's not right. It doesn't mean it doesn't bring us to a better place, a braver place, a new reality. There's a big world out there.
0: That's so well put that it's supposed to be hard and it's supposed to be scary. And it does bring us to a new place and a new reality. And it also, with the hard times, we show ourselves what we're made of. And yes, it's, I mean, again, another cliche. I don't know why I'm cliche girl today, but I, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? It's true. Yeah. and 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 that's something else that our indulgent no tolerance for delayed gratification culture we miss out on the benefits of pushing through and perseverance and i'm just so glad to know you and and to see what your experiences are offering and i do hope that people receive them as they're intended and i'm just thankful that you're sharing that with with people and i'm sure there's moments where You feel good about that because you know that you're touching people and impacting them. And I'm sure sometimes there's times where you're like, I don't like being all that public about all this (laughs) because going through a breakup is hard on a public level. And I know you're, it's not like you're Jennifer Aniston, but you're out there and more so after the book.
1: Yeah. It felt having your, having the episode I recorded with you come out while my relationship was falling apart felt very, complicated. Like I almost didn't, I had to like message you at one point and I felt weird, you know, sharing that episode because it felt like I'd spoken about a dating empowered with illness while somebody told me that my illness was why they didn't love me anymore. And, but again, I don't, that's his reality and not my reality. And that's another thing about this, this decision I was telling someone who was sort of challenging, like, oh, what you love New York. Why would you leave? And and knowing, especially because of my illness, having a safe physical space is the most important thing. And I'm sort of taking that potentially away. And I was like, just because I have an illness also doesn't mean I don't deserve to make scary, brave choices. And I might fall flat. Luckily, I do have, you know, I, I have a support network that I can I can always crash. I have a lot of people I can crash with. I've not you know, I'm not thinking too far ahead, but um, even if we don't have money, even if we have uh physical limitations, you know, I think these are societal fears that we don't deserve to do these bigger things or we don't get to because we don't have so I've no idea I've no idea <laughs> which way this is going to go, honestly, yeah. but all I know is that because of just continuing to observe, work the thoughts, talk to people, don't talk to people. It's again, choosing, taking control of what I can and choosing. I'm at like, I'm not, I'm not regressing. I'm still progressing. And that's where this kind of work, it, it keeps you moving forward. I'm the podcast I'm working on right now is about veterans telling veteran stories. And it's been an incredibly empowering project to work on. And a recent quote that's been running through my head, which is about like combat, um, Philosophy is you can't advance if you're sitting still, and it's this veteran talking about just how covering the men moving forward so they're not getting slaughtered, and we're talking about these really sort of horrific tactical maneuvers. But he says so simply, like, but you can't advance if you're sitting still, and that's just such a, it's such a, another simply profound statement. Right. Like, right, even if it's dangerous. Yeah. even if it's risky even you know if you've got a big thing that you're that you're trying to achieve in this case the allied victory of world war 2 yeah just a, know, like, like <laughs> just a little thing like that just a little thing like that you know but you have to take sometimes the big risks and trust the people around you and trust yourself and 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 stand up and move forward
0: so powerful and yeah I hope that whoever's listening and has that thing, whether it's illness, whether it's a diagnosis, whether it's I grew up here so I can't, or I did this so I couldn't take that risk or make that move or take that challenge. I hope that anyone listening who's ever labeled themselves as someone who couldn't or didn't deserve, or that wasn't for me, will hear your story and how brave you are and how intentional you are. And I hope they'll take away a little bit of a feeling of empowerment and realizing that they can make that move, they can take that chance and take that risk. So Jacqueline, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me and for the, the space to get to share this
0: please let everyone know where to find you when you are intentionally on social media, not out of habit, but out of choice because it's aligned with your values. If you want to share your new podcast,
1: let them know where to find you. So my website is JacquelineRaposo.com and I'm most active on Instagram. I've been light everywhere, but on Instagram, I'm at WordsFoodArt. And my podcast is called uh, Service Veteran Stories of Hunger and War. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at, at service podcast or service podcast. And it's an amazing show that I recommend people check out on um, very short episodes of very powerful stories that are very much just examples of, of grit and grace. These, these people inspire me every day. So if you want to be inspired, just listen to these stories.
0: Yeah. Talk about young people going through things that the we could yeah. not even fathom they were dealing yeah. with at 18 years old. And exactly. also what a beautiful archive that you are collecting because these, these gentlemen are they're up there in years. And so yes. what you are preserving for future generations, it's truly a gift.
1: Thank you. It's, it's a, it's a gift to me too. I've been, um, <laughs> talking about slowing down. I've been sitting with 90 year olds and it's a really, yeah. it's a really wonderful, uh, wonderful experience this production. So, yeah,
0: that's great. Thanks again, Jacqueline. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. The love and life hack for this week is when you feel like something's off or maybe missing, sometimes the solution is to do without. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Thanks so much for joining us this week. And a special thanks for all of you who've subscribed to my newsletter and are part of the Love and Life family. And for those of you who've rated and reviewed podcast episodes that helps others find the show, it means so much to me. Thank you. I'm so excited to be back for season three. And until next time, make it a great week.